0: Today, on Bread for the Broken, with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. Bread for the
1: broken. It says, As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. And here's where I like the New Living Translation far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them right they're like yeah okay i get it um that makes sense to me like there's no detergent on this planet that's going to make your clothes this white right so this also makes us think about revelation and when jesus shows back up which he will show back up okay but he's just he's dazzling
0: white He's just shining. In the darkest night, even the smallest light can shine the brightest. Think of the last time that you were away from all of the city lights, and the moon and the stars just shone down to illuminate the evening. Well, Jesus' return for his people will be the most radiant spectacle known to man. We don't have to wait until his return to see it, though. Pastor James reiterates that Jesus is the brightest light for our world. And it's good to remember that that light shines through us as Christians as well. Today, shine your light before the world. Now here's Pastor James in the Book of Mark, chapter 9, with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. We
2: need bread for the broken, give some, bread to the broken, we need hope for the hopeless, give song, hope to the hopeless, hopeless, bread for the broken, broken.
1: If you don't mind, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. As you're turning there, let me give you a little context because context is needed for this chapter because verse 1, some people include verse 1 of chapter 9 as part of the end of chapter 8 there, Uh, and it makes sense as to why they do that. But last week, we were talking about how Jesus made this great proclamation. You know, uh, he started telling his guys that, hey, I'm going to die right? The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, they are gunning to take me out. They're going to kill me, right? They're already plotting. They're already scheming and all that good stuff. And he lets them know, I got to go to the cross. And then Peter, before that, he asks, you know, hey, who do people say I am, you know? And they're, they're like, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets, like Jeremiah, you know, that's what they're saying. But then Jesus asks them, well, who do you say that I am, right? And then Peter makes this great proclamation of like, you're the Messiah, the Mashiach. You were the one. You're the one who came to save us. And Jesus is like, yep, Peter, that's awesome. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father made you aware of that. So he praises Peter. And then within a matter of like a few moments, Jesus starts talking about dying on the cross. And Peter rebukes Jesus, which is never a good idea. I don't know if you've learned this yet in your Christian walk. You've probably done it whether you realize it or not, but there are times where we like to correct Jesus in our walks, in our relationship with him. And it's not advisable, okay? Yeah, you shouldn't correct Jesus because number one, he knows more than you. Number two, he sees the whole picture. And so just trust him, right? So he's telling Peter and the rest of the guys, I gotta go to the cross. And see, they had this mindset because it was taught commonly back then that the Messiah was gonna show up to overthrow the Roman government. And in fact, they even taught I don't know how prominent it was, but there was a teaching there where they thought that there may be two messiahs that show up, one to suffer and die, one to rule and reign. And Jesus is like, no, 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 just one in the same. I got to suffer and die before the ruling and reigning happens. So Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus addresses Peter and the whole crowd. And he's like, look, if you want to be one of my followers, then you got to take up your cross and follow me. You got to lay down your life. You got to go all in all in to follow Jesus. There's no like walking the fence, kind of halfway in, halfway out. That doesn't exist in Christianity. You're either all in or you're all out, okay? And I know that's a maybe a hard thing to hear, but you're either all in or you're all out. And it's really important that you figure out which side you're on, because there's no like tightrope walking within Christianity. Be all in. And that's what Jesus says. You got to lay down your life. And it's not like we lose within that. Yes, you lay down your life. It's a glad surrender. It's an absolute surrender. It's a sacrifice. But what you gain as a result of that is far greater than what you would have ever gained apart from Christ in this life, okay? It's a wise investment, as they would say, right? So Jesus throws out this beautiful thing of like, if you want to be one of my followers, this this is what's required. You've got to take up your cross. You've got to follow me, And we talked a little bit about how that really is just bringing us to this place of, well, I can't do that. I'm not strong enough. I'm not strong enough to do that. I don't have the willpower required to do that. I think we all need to come to terms with that. Like, I don't care how stubborn you are. You don't have the willpower to make it through this life apart from Jesus, right? Okay? It's just better if you own it now. Like, I can't do it. The most freeing thing I've ever experienced in my life is, coming to that realization of like, I can't do this apart from you, Jesus. I can't. I've tried. I really have tried. In 20 years of walking with Jesus, I have tried to be a Christian apart from Christ. It doesn't make sense. And it's absolutely frustrating, because you can't perform. You can't. And so with this surrender, it's this acknowledgement of like, I can't do this without you, Jesus. And he's like, exactly. That's where I want you, fully dependent upon me. Okay, that's that whole like laying down your life following him, you'll never regret surrendering to Jesus. Never will you regret surrendering to Jesus. Never. So within the context of that story, then Jesus makes this other saying in verse 1 of chapter 9. I'm going to read from New Living Translation just because I like some of the nuance of it, some of the clarity it brings there. But he says, I tell you the truth within the same conversation. Some standing here right now will not die or will not see death before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. That's a great statement. That's, a, that's an amazing statement. So he, he just throws down this thing of like, look, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross and all this good stuff. And Peter's, oh, remember, he's still there and he's kind of probably standing off to the side and he's kind of like, oh, I feel, I feel like, I feel dumb, right? <laughs> like I just said, I just rebuked Jesus. And Jesus is probably like, oh, don't worry, more is headed your way, Peter. But Jesus says... There's some of you guys standing here now, you're going to see something amazing. And there's a lot of different ideas of what he's talking about here. I don't believe he's talking about the rapture, okay? I don't believe he's talking about that at all. He's not talking about some of these guys will never die, okay? Because we got some of that. If you read through the Gospel of John, some people come up with this idea that Jesus was talking to John, although he lived like quite a while, I mean, into his 90s, but he wasn't going to live forever, right? In that sense, here on earth. What he's talking about, what he's referencing here is this transfiguration that's about to happen. Because if we keep everything within context, and that's the key to reading the Bible and studying the Bible, is keep it in context. Okay, don't go all wild and crazy with it. Just take it for what it is and just keep reading. You go from this scene into a mountaintop experience. You guys like mountains? Of course we do. We live on an island. We love what we don't have, right? We're like, yes, mountains. If only I lived there. And let me tell you what happens. You live there and you're like, if only I lived on the beach, right? We're never content. We're never satisfied. I've lived in the, I've literally lived in the mountains of Colorado and it's beautiful. It's lovely, but I don't want to live in the mountains anymore. I've lived on the beach. The beach is amazing. It's my place. I lived in the plains of Amarillo. Nobody wants to live in the plains of Amarillo. Nobody's longing for those arid lands. No, beautiful people, but uh, there's just nothing to see for miles. This goes into a mountaintop scene. And what I believe is the mountain is, it's not Mount Tabor, which some people would say it's Mount Hermon. I'm just going to say it's probably Mount Hermon. I showed you a picture of that. It's a snow-capped mountain in the northern part of Israel. Beautiful, amazing area of Israel. Absolutely. It, It is the opposite of what you think of when somebody says Israel. Okay, you think dry, arid, rocks everywhere, because there are literally rocks everywhere, desert kind of area. Now, this is mountainous. This is rivers and just beautiful and and pine trees and all types of stuff. It's Colorado in Israel. It's kind of what it is, right? This is where we believe that the scene will shift to, because they're already in that region. They're already in the northern part, so it wouldn't be too long for them to take a walk up to the mountaintop. Verse 2 is where this Story picks up six days later, right? And we know, um, I think it's Luke's gospel where he says eight days later because he's counting the day it happens and then the day of. And so, if you're reading the Luke's account of that, you're like, wait, was it six or eight days? Yes, yes, he didn't count the well, Luke counted the day of and then the day that happened. Mark and Matthew, they didn't include those days, so there's no like was this like, a, you know, some error within scripture? No, no, that, if it, even if, it, that's silly, if it was. It's just somebody didn't count the day before and the day of, it's totally fine. Mark's account, along with Peter, because remember, Peter is kind of co-writing this with Mark, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. says so six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, those are the three, and led them up a high mountain to be alone, right? So you got the whole crew, the 12 of them, and Jesus specifically gets Peter, James, and John, and he's gonna bring them deeper or up the mountain with him. It kind of reminds us of Moses going up the mountain, right? Because he took some leaders with him up to the mountain, okay? There's a lot of like similarities here. In fact, Moses shows up in the story. But he takes these three guys who all work together in the world, right? They are all fishermen, and he's gonna take them further in. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is going to take these same three guys deeper into the garden. When he goes to raise a little girl from the dead, Jesus takes these three guys, right? And so it's not that he doesn't care about the other guys. He's just placing this responsibility on the shoulders of these three, okay? The other ones that are left behind, the nine, don't worry about them. He had a job for them to do at the base of the mountain, so to speak, which they fell miserably at. We'll get there next week. Jesus is going to take these three up with him. So they go up into the mountaintop to be alone. It says, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. And here's where I like the New Living Translation. Far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them, right? They're like, yeah, okay, I get it. Um, That makes sense to me. Like, there's no detergent on this planet that's going to make your clothes this White, right? So this also makes us think about Revelation and when Jesus shows back up, which he will show back up, okay? But he's just, he's dazzling white. He's just shining. Mountaintop, Jesus with a few other leaders with him, and he's shining bright, kind of reminds us of Exodus and Moses and the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah glory. What I like about this story, though, is Moses sat in the presence of God and he reflected right? He absorbed so much, so to speak, that, I mean, even when he went down the mountain, people were terrified to look at him. and He had to put a bag over his face, right? And that wasn't like it's because the glow was diminishing, right? And we know that over time. Jesus is, well, Jesus is God. He is the Shekinah. He is. I mean, it's not like, He's glowing because he spent time in the presence of the Father. We know the other gospel accounts of this say that they went up there and Jesus was praying during this time. And the disciples, what you'll appreciate about this is he's praying for so long that guess what? They fall asleep again, right? That may be in the first time, but it definitely won't be the last time, right? I mean, they're there and they're like, Jesus is up on the mountaintop and he's praying. So he's having this communion with the Father. And I mean, this light, it doesn't come from the outside in, it comes from the inside out, and he just starts glowing. And so as the disciples in kind of this, you know, they finally will wake up to the realization of like, well, something's going on. We probably shouldn't be sleeping right now, right? Really, the wording behind that is like they were getting super drowsy. They were doing that thing that we do, where you're starting to nod off, even sometimes on Sunday mornings, and you're just doing the head bob and all that stuff, and you're hopefully your neighbor's elbowing you in the ribs. But they were up there for a long time, and Jesus is praying, and they're just getting tired. But in the midst of this, Jesus, he just starts to shine bright. And really, we'll hit this at the end, but I just want you to understand, the whole point of the transfiguration is to display that Jesus is God. He's no mere man. He's God. He's God in flesh, God incarnate is what we would call that. He is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, the triune God that we ascribe to, that we hold fast to. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three are real. All three are separate, distinct, Okay. And here he is. He's on the mountain, and he's transfigured. Why is he transfigured? That should be the question we're asking, right? Like, well, why is this happening? If I was a disciple, I'd be like, what's going on? Jesus is about to, with his disciples, come down off the mountain. And then the journey from here is to Jerusalem. And what is at the end of the road, so to speak, is a cross and a tomb. And you get this transfiguration, number one, highlighting the fact that Jesus is, he is God. This proves his deity, okay? This should also serve as a comfort to those who are following closest to him. And this will be a secret that they kind of have to keep until he resurrects. But this should also be a comfort for them as well. He's talking a lot about suffering. He's talking a lot about going to a cross and laying down your life. And this is almost like a sneak peek, a preview, if you will, of why it's worth it to hold on, why it's worth it to continue on with Jesus. Because he gives them this, like, this sneak peek of like, hey guys, the suffering will be worth it. And not even just speaking to their suffering, because that's a part of taking up your cross. There is some suffering that goes along with that. But he's also speaking to the fact that he himself will suffer. And he's saying, it's all going to be worth it. Because look at the end result. They will see this same transfigured Jesus, changed Jesus, kind of glorious Jesus. They'll meet him again after the cross and after the resurrection. So it's almost like that thing of like, Sometimes we need a, an extra jolt to kind of finish. You know, if you ever exercised at all, or if you're crazy and you go running, I don't understand you, but they say you get that runner's you know, second wind kind of a deal. I don't, I just get pain in the sides, um, just hurts. And, but it's like you get this extra shot that you need just to kind of, just when you think you can't make it anymore, then you can press on. You can finish. I see this as like kind of that thing, and Jesus is, I mean, this is a, an amazing moment in time, in history, and Peter, James, and John, I mean, what an awesome opportunity to witness this. And they're snoozing on Jesus. <laughs> they're like, like, holy cow, wake up. What's wrong with you? You're missing out. And there's some nice little practical application there for the Church of America. We're sleeping, sleeping. I wonder what we're missing out on. I wonder what the Church of America is missing out on. Because you know Jesus doesn't stop moving. You know that Jesus is never inactive. You know he's constantly on the go. You know his eyes are searching to and fro, looking for people that he could just use, who are available to him. He, I think he has plans. He does have plans. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven tells us he knows the plans that he has for us. But I wonder if we're asleep. I wonder if we're snoozing on Jesus. I wonder how many plans I've missed out on personally because I'm just too drowsy. We've got to wake up. And see, Mark doesn't really include the fact that they were sleeping, but we do have Matthew's account and we have Luke's account. And they both say, yeah, these guys, these guys dozed off. And how sad would it have been if they missed that entire moment? Praise God, they woke up when they did. But I wonder what conversations they missed out on as Jesus is there talking to Elijah the prophet who never died. You can go back into First Kings and you read all about him. He's an amazing, amazing prophet, incredible prophet, um, was, was taken up. He was raptured, kind of, like in a chariot of fire up to heaven. Like never died, never experienced death. Why? Well, because he's going to come back and Jesus is going to talk about that in a second too. Then you got Moses who did die. He did die. And these two dudes are talking to Jesus and you're sleeping. I wonder what they missed out on as these guys are talking. We do know as far as Some of the conversation and what that centered around. And Jesus probably let his guys know, hey, while you guys were sawing logs, this is kind of what we talked about. But they missed out on a part of it. And how terrible would it have been if they just would have got so comfortable that they slept the whole time? There's a word of caution there for us as believers. Don't get so comfortable where you just fall asleep on Jesus and you miss out because he's always looking for willing vessels. And the reality of that is, if I'm not a vessel that has made itself available to be used, he will find another vessel to use. And that goes completely countercultural to the world we live in today, where everybody should get some sort of participation trophy. That's not how it works in the kingdom. And I'm sorry, but that's not how it goes. And I appreciate that. I like that, because I realize that there are times where I probably have missed out on opportunities. But you know what that does for me? That wakes me up to say, man, Lord, I don't want to miss out on another one. I don't want a participation trophy. I don't want that. I hate that. When I played basketball at high school, I hated that they let everybody have time. They can't play. I don't know how they made it on the team. They shouldn't have that. I'm not the best. I get it. But I know I can score some buckets. They can't even dribble. Why are they here? Why Why are you subbing us out to put them in? Well, that's the rule. And I get it. I mean, you want to give everybody a chance. I'm not trying to be mean. But I do know that there's this reality to following Jesus where it's like, you should just be ready. And if I'm not ready, he'll find somebody who is ready. And we should be totally fine with that. What? We're like, no, no, Jesus, give me, you know, just, that's mean, Jesus. Right? And he's like, well, you have my word. Stay ready. Stay ready. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Right? They're on the mountaintop. These guys are waking up, as we know from the other gospel accounts, Jesus and Elijah and Moses. I mean, it even says here that in verse four of Mark's gospel, it says, then Elijah and Moses appeared and began to talk with Jesus. And I believe it's in Luke's account where he says that it's Elijah and Moses began to speak to Jesus about his exodus. And that's the word they use, his death and his resurrection, which the term they use there is his own exodus a greater than Moses is who Jesus is and he is leading his own exodus slaves and captives to be set free transitioning into a promised land and this is not the promised land this is not it right you're not experiencing heaven on earth i mean this like we were just joking about that like if this is heaven like the heaven has come then i got questions Jesus, I got some, I don't see that in your word. Like, no, because heaven's not here yet. New heaven, new earth, those things are coming. But they're talking to Jesus about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. These two guys, just guys. There's nothing special about these men. Well, Elijah never died, so that's kind of special, right? That's kind of cool. But beyond that, he's just a normal person. And they're there in the presence of Jesus. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for these Old Testament prophets? They had seen it, you know, and prophetically and all that good stuff. They were awaiting that day. And now here they are in the presence of Jesus. And all they want to do is they just want to talk to him. They want to talk to him about the things his disciples don't want to talk to him about. Him dying, him being buried, and him raising from the dead. See, when he talked to his disciples about that, Peter's like, please stop talking about this. But when Moses and Elijah show up, that's all they want to talk about. That's all they want to talk about because they got it. They knew who they were talking with. And so as they're talking, they're having a conversation. Here's our buddy, Peter, right? Just, oh, he's the best. I'm so glad the Bible included Peter within the scriptures, because he's one of the most relatable guys I've ever known, right? Like, he's just one of those things where it's like, were you thinking before you started talking? Like, is your processor, is it like our computer? Is it kind of like slow? Is it glitching sometimes where... You know, you're not thinking of the next step. Like that frontal lobe thing never developed for Peter, I guess. Or maybe it did over time. But here's Peter rubbing sleep out of his eyes, realizing, holy cow, Moses, Elijah, Jesus. Question I have, how do you know it's Moses and Elijah? We had their baseball cards. No, there's no, <laughs> there's no pictures. There's no pictures. Well, it's like somebody drew a caricature, right? Like on the boardwalk or something of Moses. No, there's, how do you know? I like that because there's a hint that when you get to heaven, the presence of Jesus, and I'm going to say new heaven, new earth, all that good stuff, and this is the best thing ever, you won't have to remember anybody's name. And praise God for that, because I'm the worst at that. Like, there's no name tags, no nothing. It seems as though you will know everyone there. That's a beautiful thing that's an amazing thing. And what's also cool about that is Peter and the other two disciples identify them as that's Moses, the Moses, the prophet Moses, who the deliverer, and that's Elijah, the prophet. Like they know them. They know of their earthly stories. So I wonder if heaven is like this, where you're up in heaven. And it's not like your brain gets white You know, and you're like, I don't know anybody. I don't know your story at all. I wonder if you're up there and you see Moses and you see Elijah and you're like, Moses, dude, tell me about Exodus. Elijah on Mount Carmel, tell me about that moment where he called down fire from heaven and all those priests of Baal and you were giving them a hard time saying that their God must be in the bathroom. That's why he's not answering you. Like, Elijah, you're classic, man. I want to talk to you more about that. And these types of references kind of frame out some cool little pictures for us that maybe, just maybe, heaven will be like that.
0: Thanks for joining us today here on Bread for the Broken with Pastor James Grizzle. We're walking through the Gospel of Mark one of the accounts of Jesus' life while he was here on the earth. Mark offers unique perspectives on this time, emphasizing Jesus' servanthood to the people that he met. Jesus loved practically, often, and with everyone. What a kind and humble servant we get to serve. If you need to hear this message again, or you'd like to catch up on previous teachings, visit our website at breadforthebroken.com. Once you're there, simply click on the Listen tab and feel free to explore the variety of verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter Bible teachings. Bread for the Broken is a ministry of Calvary Galveston. And if you're ever in the Galveston area, we would love to have you come visit us. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. for a time of worship and Bible study. Our Thursday night Bible study starts at 7 p.m., and you're welcome to come join us for both. Our atmosphere at Calvary Galveston is relaxed, so feel free to come just as you are. For more information, visit our website. Once again, that's breadforthebroken.com. You can get directions there as well. We're excited to meet you and spend some time worshiping with you. That's all the time that we have for today, but we're so glad that you listened in to hear from God's Word. We encourage you to read ahead in the book of Mark and to gear up for what's ahead in this New Testament book. There's so much to learn, so much to know about Jesus. So make plans to join us again, right here on Bread for the Broken.
2: Let me paint the picture of you.